All right, we are in Galatians chapter 4. You remember we ended last Wednesday at verse 20. So let's pick it up at verse 21 of Galatians chapter 4. Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. But he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory? Now I want you to underline that. Which things are an allegory? A lot of theologians like to throw that word around allegory so they can put their own spin on the scripture. You've got to be careful. This word allegory that is here, God's going to tell us what the allegory is. And what the Holy Spirit says it is, is what it is. I don't care what some commentator says about it. It is what God tells us it is. You don't have to look for something else. It is what it is. And you'll see that when we get into it. For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth gendereth the bondage, which is Agar. For this Agar is is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not, break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. Who's he writing to again? The churches of Galatia. He says, now we are the children of promise. That's a very definite statement, isn't it? We are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. What on earth is he talking about? Well, we'll find out in just a bit. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that our hearts would be open to simply what the Holy Spirit of God gives us in this lesson about being justified by faith. This book is very, very clear about that. May we not be led astray by the writings of the so-called expert theologians who leave the Word of God as quick as they can to come up with their own ideas on it. Let us just stick with the Scripture. So have your way in our hearts tonight, and we'll thank you for what you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's review the things that we have learned so far about the book of Galatians. Number one, the author of the book is who? Paul. Very good. I gave you two possible dates for the writing of the book of Galatians. There is an early Galatians theory and a later Galatians theory. But let me say before we give the dates, it doesn't matter. Whether it was written in the early date or in the latter date, it still comes from God. God has preserved it for the church. It is his word. The message, the meaning does not change one iota. Okay. But there are two possible dates. And these are simply estimates at that. The latter date is for, or the later date is first what? 58 
All right, you remember we don't see we don't say C E, we see we say A D. You know, that was difficult to say. <laughs> what about that? Uh, common era. No, listen, you know they <laughs> the reason they've changed all that is to try to get away from any reference to Christ. That's why they've changed it. We live in an antichrist world. That's the way it is. So 58 AD is the later Galatians date. And the, um, let's see, the early date is what? 49 AD. Now, there are different thoughts by different people as to the date. And there is evidence for both, which makes it very hard for us to pick one necessarily over the other. But the truth of the whole book remains exactly the same. All right, the book was written to who? The churches, the churches of Galatia. And Galatia is that central part of what we know as Turkey today. When Paul and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey, they went to Antioch and Pisidia, they went to Perga, they went to, uh, uh, let's see, they went to Iconium, they went to Lystra, they went to Derby. That's in that central part of what we know as Turkey. Those are the churches of Galatia that he was writing to. These are people, churches that the Apostle Paul, along with Barnabas, got started on their first missionary journey. And the uh, theme, I'm sorry, the purpose of the book is what? Correcting error. Very good. And the theme of the book is what? justified by faith. And he says that over and over again in the scripture. The key verse is found in chapter 2 and verse what? 16. 16. So let's all find it, young and old alike. Let's find it. Galatians 2, 16. We're going to read it together. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now the key to understanding this book is reading it simply within the context that it is given to us. It's plain. He deals with being justified by faith over and over again. But always understand this. When we read the epistles, that whoever it's written to, they were expected to understand what they wrote. When you consider, for instance, the book of uh, Galatians, or the letter to the Galatians, was read to those churches. This is before the Gospel of John had been written, before 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and before the book of the Revelation had been written. Not only that, 1st and 2nd Peter had not been written yet. The book of Romans had not been written yet. So the book of the people of Galatia were expected to understand as this letter from Paul was being read to them, they were expected to understand exactly what was being said. And if you don't just cut it up, we have to cut it up or we'd be here a long time going through the entire book. But I always try to bring you back to this matter of the context, what's being said, because there are some people who and many commentaries that are out there that try to make this book speak against standards for believers. And it's just not there. It's not there anywhere in the book. They try to make an application that goes beyond what the book is about, and they end up saying a number of false things. Understand, like for instance, in chapter 3 and verse 24, when he says, for the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. And after that faith has come, we're no longer under the schoolmaster. 
Therefore, some people say we can do away with the Old Testament. We're not under it anymore. Well, we're not under it as far as salvation is concerned. But years later, the Holy Spirit of God writes this through the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3. All Scripture, get this, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. You see, this book is still good for me for doctrine. I'm talking about the Old Testament is good for me for doctrine. It's good for me for correction, for rebuke, for reproof. It's good for me for instruction in righteousness. As a matter of fact, for me to be everything that I should be as a believer, I need what it says in the Old Testament. Uh, It's no longer my schoolmaster to bring me to Christ. It's done that. But it still has worth for me. I need it. You need it if you're a born-again believer as well. So don't try to make the Scripture say what it's simply not saying. Now, to review where we came from, he starts out with a brief salutation in chapter 1. But before he even says anything good about these people, he's upset with them. I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that called you unto another gospel. He starts out with an automatic rebuke. That sorry church that was down at Corinth, at least he started saying some good things about him before he got into his many rebukes. The difference between the people of Galatia and the people at Corinth was the people at Corinth were doing wrong. The people at Galatia were believing wrong. The people of Galatia had swallowed the lie that you had to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved and to stay saved. You had to be circumcised according to the law of Moses in order to be saved. Now, listen, there's nothing wrong. There's absolutely nothing wrong with whether if a person's been circumcised. If that's, that's just fine. But if you've done it in order to be saved, that's wrong. They're wrong. You see, you've got to believe right about salvation. You could be right about everything else in the scripture, but if you're wrong about salvation, you're going to die and go to hell. You've got to have salvation right. There's not 10 ways to get saved. There's not two ways to get saved. There's only one way to get saved. So he says, if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which I preached unto you, let him be accursed. You remember we talked about the passage from Acts chapter 15 when the people had, after the first missionary journey, they had run into Paul and Barnabas. The Bible says, and certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. If therefore, or when therefore, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go to Jerusalem under the apostles and elders about this question. This needed to get settled. But he reminds the people at Galatia that he did not get his gospel message from James. He didn't get it from Peter. He didn't get it from the other apostles, that he got it from Jesus Christ himself. Now, this is an either-or situation. Either he did or he didn't. He's telling the church, here's how I got it. I got it from Jesus Christ. You're believing another message, not the one I got from Christ. He even calls the people that came in and preached this heresy false brethren. He gave his testimony in the latter part of chapter 1 and then also in chapter 2 about when he went to Jerusalem, talked to James, talked to Peter. They had absolutely nothing to add to the message of salvation that he had been preaching. 
But then later when Peter had gone up, this is in chapter 2, had gone up to the church at, at uh, Antioch, he had had fellowship with the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers that were in the church. He had eaten with them. But when some of these people from the Judean churches had gone up to Antioch, these were people who were zealous for the law, who said you had to keep the law in order to go to heaven. We find Peter leaving the Gentile believers and eating with only the Jewish believers. And for that, the Apostle Paul rebuked him to his face, for he was to be blamed. And we learn something about the power here the power of our influence on other people. Because what those men had done to Peter, Peter's actions had also moved Barnabas in a wrong direction. And it also moved some of the Jewish believers that were in the church at Antioch in a bad direction. And you notice in the verses I read how Paul and Barnabas before that had had no small dissension or disputation with these ones from the Judean churches who had come up and were preaching their heresy. Listen, God's men have got to stand for truth. This is not a hodgepodge. This is not a buffet where you can pick and choose what you want. There is only one way to get saved and there can be no compromise whatsoever. If we are an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. So we covered that. What's he dealing with? He's dealing with being justified by faith. Notice in verse 16 of chapter 2, we read the verse, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. We get declared not guilty by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. Notice verse 21. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Please understand this. These people were not living wrong. They were believing wrong. As a matter of fact, if they were trying to keep the law in order to go to heaven, then they were living pretty good, pretty moral lives if they were trying to keep the law to go to heaven. So the problem was not a sinful life. Their problem was a wrong belief about how you get to heaven. And so he pronounces a curse upon those who simply preach another gospel. But this matter of being justified by faith, you get down to chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? The obvious answer to that is what? By the hearing of faith. So then he says, are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain? Listen, this is incredulous to the apostle Paul that these people would think somehow that when Christ saved them, that wasn't complete, that they had to complete their own righteousness. He refers much about that truth in Romans chapter 10, verses one through four, concerning the Jews. They went about to establish their own righteousness. If you look at verse 8, we have uh, in chapter 3, and the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the heathen, notice, through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, in thee shall all the nations be blessed. How would they be blessed in him? Through his seed, who is Jesus Christ. Notice verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. 
For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Then notice verse 11. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And then he goes through the proof that Abraham was justified by faith. And he quotes from Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, where it says, after he received the promise of a son, the Bible says Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. The apostle Paul uses the same argument in the book of Romans chapter 4 when he says, what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. You see, the just have life by faith. The just shall live by faith. The seed that he promised was not the Jews. The seed that he promised is Jesus Christ. That's the seed promised. And it's by our faith in Christ that we become part of Abraham's seed. See, this is not, um, uh, that's not changing. I'm trying to think of the word and I can't think of it. This is, this is not changing the blessings of Israel to the church. It has nothing to do with that. Because Israel's not even mentioned here. What it has to do with is the promised seed is Jesus Christ. The promise is righteousness by faith in Christ. For righteousness, the law brought us to the heir, Jesus Christ, by faith. Chapter 3, verse 29. And if he be Christ's seed, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, he makes an interesting statement. In verse 26, he says, For ye are all the children of God... By faith in Christ Jesus. After he makes a couple more comments about that, he gets into chapter 4. And then he says, now I say, the heir, as long as he is a child, differs nothing from, the, uh, from a servant, though he be Lord of all. Now, there's a lot of applications we can make concerning Christian education and so on, or the fact that a parent is responsible for whatever teaching their child gets. No matter what school they go to, the parent is the one who's got to answer God for what their kids are going to hear, what they're going to be taught. But that's not, that's not the main thing he's writing about here. He's talking about us being the heirs before we were under the law. It had a job to teach us about Christ, to bring us to Christ, and then we came to him. And as we dealt with that from chapter 4, uh, he says in verse 4, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. Verse 6, And because you're sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 8, he tells us that we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ, which is an awesome truth. And when I was preaching on that, I almost had a spell on that. But here was their problem. Verse 10, he observed days and months and times and years. These people were trying to keep God's law. That's what they had come to in order to be saved. But that would mean then all of the law in order to have salvation. And... Um, Let's see. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. I'm going to miss what I'm, what I'm uh, giving you. All right. Notice what he says in verse 20. In verse 20, he says, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice. 
for I stand in doubt of you. After everything that he has just said. Matter of fact, back up in verse 11. He said, I'm afraid of you. Lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. You know, the problem is when we lead somebody trying to win them to Christ and they take Christ as their Savior or they say that they do, we really don't know what they're really believing. Here the Apostle Paul, when he first went to them to give them the gospel, man, they couldn't do enough enough for him. They were so excited. They even treated him as they would if he was Jesus Christ himself. But now they've gone astray to another gospel. It would appear. And he says, I'm afraid of you, lest I bestowed labor upon you in vain. And then in verse 20, for I stand in doubt of you. How could you get so far afield? So now he wants to pick up on this matter of being, uh, of what he said back in verse 29, I'm not 29, but 26 of chapter 3, for you're all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And he's going to give us an illustration. They were not born with the idea of the promised seed. Um, In Abraham chapter, let's see, no, uh, Genesis. Here's what I need to mention. I couldn't understand my own notes. Um, Abraham, remember when he was given the promise, he believed the promise. But a few years passed, almost 10 years passed, and they still didn't have a child. They had not given birth to the promised son yet. And you'll remember that Sarah came up with a plan. Her plan was, if you'll go unto my handmaid, Hagar, then you can have a child, and that will be the child born in our home, and that can be the promised seed. And so Ishmael was born. But then a few years later, we find that uh, we find that God, and God told him, Ishmael's not the one. You've done this thing wrong. I have the promised seed for you, and it's coming through Sarah. And then, of course, Isaac was born. And you study down the genealogies, Abraham, Isaac, and on down the line. You eventually come as you go through uh, the 12 tribes. You go through Judah. Uh, Christ, of course, is the promised seed. Um, we come to this part. Notice the basis for the illustration he's going to give. Verse 21, tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? So let's remember, who is he asking this question to? Do ye not hear the law? He's asking the question to those who are desiring to be under the law. He's asking the question to these people who had made a profession of faith, but now they're desiring that their salvation be locked up in the law. Even though the law can't bring life, the law can't keep them saved, the law didn't get them saved, and here they are trying to be under the law. He says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, that's Ishmael, the other by a free woman, that would be Isaac, was Sarah. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. What on earth does that mean? It was Abraham and Sarah's plan. Wasn't God's plan. God was going to give them a son. And he's going to give them a son in his time. He had said back in the early part of chapter 4, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. The son would come. And he would come In God's time, they were trying to help God along. 
I got news for you. God doesn't need any help. All right. So he then says this about these two children. He says in verse 20, uh, 24, which things are an allegory. Now, what on earth is an allegory? An allegory is a picture. In this story, uh, there may be a lot of lessons from this story, but here's the Holy Ghost application of what he means by an allegory. It is a picture with a spiritual lesson in it. Now, remember, these Galatians, many of them who were Gentiles, some of them who were Jewish believers, they were expected to understand it. They didn't need a strong concordance to understand it. They were expected to understand it when they heard it. So when he calls it an allegory, don't look for somebody coming with some far off idea. He's going to give us what allegory it is. I can't stress that enough. You've got to understand that. So which things are an allegory? For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Hagar or Agar. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. What happened on Mount Sinai? Israel got the law. But when Agar gave birth to Ishmael, they had gotten nothing from Mount Sinai yet. Why? This is a picture. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 14 that Abraham, not Abraham, Adam was a type of Christ, a picture of, I'm sorry, it doesn't say type. It says a figure of Christ, which is another word for picture. Was Adam Christ? No, he was just a figure of Christ. And there are lessons in the figure, but a person trusts Adam to go to heaven, he's going to die and go to hell. You understand that? He's just a figure of Christ. This is an allegory. He's not saying that Hagar was at Mount Sinai. He says this allegory that I'm giving you, that she represents Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is where the law was given, but that's given hundreds of years later than the story of Agar and Ishmael. And answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. He's already let us know that the law shows us in bondage to our sin, guilty of our sin. The law can't save us. No man is justified by the law on the side of God. It is evident for the just to live by faith. That does not make the law bad. In Romans chapter 7, he calls it holy and right and good because it showed us we were sinners and that we needed a Savior. If we try to keep the law now, then we're just putting ourselves in a, in a bondage. That's not called for. He says, but Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, rejoice thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. That's the picture. It's a simple picture. Two children. One that was born out of Sarah and Abraham's idea of what the promise should be. There are a lot of people who got their own ideas what should save somebody. 
No, there's only one thing that saves people, Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. If you hear anything different than that, you're hearing a false way of salvation. doesn't save anybody. They're still lost. They're still on their way to hell. All right? That's the way of the flesh. I used to think before I got saved that God would put all my good works on one side of a big scale, all my bad works on the other side of a big scale, and the good would outweigh the bad, and God let me into heaven. That was false. I would have died and went to hell like that if I'd have kept believing that. See, that was, that's man's thoughts. Man thinks, we say, do you know if you die tonight, you go to heaven? Well, I'm a pretty good person. I've not robbed any stores. I've not killed anybody. I don't get drunk much. I'm basically a nice person, except when I'm drinking a lot, you know. You know how that works. Hey, that didn't save you. I don't care if you never drink a drop. If you're trusting that good life of not drinking a drop, trying to be kind to your neighbor, you'll die and go to hell. Because you're already a sinner. You're already condemned. You're already guilty. You see, it is the one of God's plan, the Lord Jesus Christ, by which we get life. And there, Sarah represents Jerusalem. Not to say she was in Jerusalem. I don't know that we have any record that she was ever in Jerusalem. But it's an allegory. Now, the story is true, the way it's written, but the allegory of it is that Abraham's first son, Ishmael, was the one of the flesh, not the one of promise. And if you understand that, he's trying to make it plain to these people that it is only in Christ. So he gives us a point and a proof and a conclusion. In verse 26, here's the point. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all in the story. Now, what happened? What happened at Jerusalem? Christ died for our sins. Now, this is important because you're going to see him in the two verses later quote from an Old Testament passage. And where he's quoting from is powerful. So the covenant from Mount Sinai, she was the bondwoman under orders, life and death in the hands of another. She answered to another. Mount Sinai, the giving of the law, uh, answers to Jerusalem. And notice what he says in verse, uh, let's see, verse 30. Nevertheless, what say the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. I'm, I'm reading the wrong place. Verse 27 is what I want. For it is written, rejoice thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which has a husband. A lot more lost people in the world than there are saved people. A lot more lost people than there are saved people. But notice he said in verse 27, for as it is written. As it is, where is it written? Where is what he quotes right here? Where is it written? It's written in Isaiah 54 and verse 1. Now, put on your thinking cap. I'm not going to ask you to embarrass you because you, you suddenly you just ask somebody a question and they freeze up. Isn't that right? I don't want to give the wrong answer. What's he looking for? I don't want you to worry about that. I want you to get this. Isaiah 54, verse 1. What comes just before Isaiah 54? Isaiah 53. Well, that's simple, isn't it? 
Do you know about Isaiah 53? What is Isaiah 53 all about? The whole chapter, what's it about? It's about Christ and his sacrifice for us on the cross of Calvary. And where did he die for us? At Jerusalem. You see, the proof of his allegory is scripture. Isaiah 54 and verse 1. And when you think of all that had taken place, this is proof that our salvation is wrapped up totally in what Jesus Christ did. Man, I read this, I just, I want to shout. And the reason I'm having some trouble tonight, I want to get to all this all at once. I just get so excited about this. What a powerful truth. I would say on this one, man, just stay away from the commentators because they want to show you how smart they are and they get so far afield to what the Holy Ghost says. And I, I think the Holy Ghost is the best one to give us the meaning of a passage. And he does it right here by what he quotes. So what's the conclusion? As between the two, Ishmael and Isaac, which one was the child of promise? It was Isaac. And we are the children of that promise. For you're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. So with his comment on this matter being justified, just don't read more into it. What you've got going on is then the battle of the covenants. The fleshly covenant, the spiritual covenant. Verses 29, we read uh, verse 29. But as in he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit... Even so it is now. Matter of fact, in Romans chapter 8, he'll go on to say, uh, for we are, we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. You go down through the history of the church and you find it strewn with the martyrs, the blood of the saints that were put to death by religionists who were lost. Religionists who were living a salvation of works instead of a salvation of faith. And they can't stand it that we have salvation simply by the grace of God. The Catholics murdered millions. People get upset with that, but it's a historical fact. They did it. They didn't just murder people. They tortured people. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. He's letting us know that that's the way it would be. By the way, the Apostle Paul, before he got saved, he was part of the children of Ishmael. He persecuted the church. If you read Acts chapter 22, when he gives his testimony before the loss there at the temple, he talks about what he did, that he had, he had license from the Jewish leaders to go up to Damascus and to persecute Christians, to put him in jail. And by his own testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he had some murdered. That's where he was before he got saved, when he was a child of the bondwoman. But when by faith he came to the Lord Jesus Christ, now he's a, firm, he's a firm preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we're justified by faith. So then he says in verse 30, nevertheless, let's say the scripture, cast out the bondwoman. Now, what on earth is he saying? Let me give you a thought. I'll just give you a thought. You can meditate on this. Since there are people who have come to that church and preached to those people, you've got to keep the law of Moses in order to stay saved. He's already called them in chapter 2, false brethren. He's concerned. He's somewhat in doubt of these people that he had witnessed to before. But when he said, cast out the bondwoman, 
Is he telling the churches of Galatia that they need to cast out these people who are bringing in this false gospel? They need to be cast out. You know, we Christians, we don't go around killing people. But when it comes to false doctrine, especially dealing salvation, we can't allow it to be spread through the church of Jesus Christ. And there comes a time when you have to say, you can't teach that here. There's the door. You've got to hit it. We're not going to allow it. The Bible says in Romans 16, 17, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them. Now think about that. So he says, cast out the bondwoman and her son for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free women. Well, I think as long as we're all sincere, we're going to heaven. No. That's a lie of the bondwoman. No, we're not all going to heaven. Only those who've been truly been born again by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. So then he says, so then brethren, I love this. We are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. How do we get that way? By faith in Christ. Now, I'm going to give you a verse that's part of next week's message, but I think it's a good verse to close out the message for today. Because four verses later, in chapter 5 and verse 4, Christ is become of no effect to you. Well, let me go back to verse 3. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect to you, unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. So we get to chapter 5. What is he still talking about? He's still talking about being justified. He's not talking about sanctification. He's not talking about getting more separated. He's still dealing with the same subject he was dealing with back in chapter 1. Being justified by faith. You say, well, is there a problem then with this matter of circumcision? No, not at all. As a matter of fact, you remember the Apostle Paul is not telling us that the law can't be followed. It's done his job as far as salvation is concerned in that it's brought me to Christ. But it has other things to teach me. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 18 took a Jewish vow. In Acts chapter 20, he took another vow to go to the temple with six men who had a vow that they were making at the temple. He went with them. He doesn't complain about that. The apostle Paul had Timothy be circumcised, not in order to be saved, but so that he wouldn't be a stumbling block to the Jews that he'd be preaching to because his mother and grandmother were Jewish. And so he simply had Timothy circumcised to not be a stumbling block to the Jews that Timothy would be preaching to. But he did not have him circumcised in order to be saved. It all gets down to what's the purpose behind it. What are you thinking? Are you trusting Christ as Savior of the law? When there are people, let me ask you this question. What about people who believe you can lose your salvation? Because if you could lose your salvation, why would you lose it? If you could lose your salvation, why would you? You'd say sin. Oh, in other words, then, and I've got to live without sin in order to keep my salvation. But that's not how you keep salvation. That's definitely not how you got it. 
If you believe you can lose your salvation, then friend, you believe in a work salvation. You don't believe in salvation by grace through faith in Christ. You say, but preacher, man, if, if I got saved and then I got back, got drunk and I went out and I robbed a store and I got killed in the shootout with the police, uh, I wouldn't deserve to go to heaven. Are you saying I'd go to heaven? Well, you don't deserve to go to heaven now. Even if you don't get drunk, even if you don't rob a store, you still don't deserve to go to heaven. It's, nobody goes to heaven because they deserve to go to heaven. The only people who go to heaven are people who put their faith in Jesus Christ and have been justified by faith in Christ. And when you do that, you become blessed in the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Wow. The Apostle Paul, we get up to this section, we're in four chapters now, and he has hit this thing from every angle. I believe with all my heart, that God's people need to get welded to the truth. We don't need to play with it. We get welded to the truth. This is truth. It has nothing to do with how you feel. You say, well, preacher, I just feel feel lost. Well, okay, so? You feel lost. Big deal. Are you lost has to do with what you've done with Christ, not with how you feel. Please understand, feelings don't tell you what you are. I mean, you sound like one of these, one of this woke crowd out here. If you, like, if you feel like you're a different age, you are. If you feel like you're a different gender, you are. If you feel like you're a different species, you are. If you feel like your feeling has nothing to do with whether or not you're saved. It's who you've trusted. These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Powerful stuff. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Lord, I got ahead of myself so much tonight. This is so powerful. So many things in this, in this entire book. Really, if a person just reads it and believes what it says, they should have no trouble with what saves a person. It's faith in Christ. Faith in Christ alone. God, I pray that if there's one here tonight that's never truly been born again, I pray that they would come to Jesus Christ and be saved tonight. They can never, they can never establish their own righteousness. The only righteousness that gets them to heaven is the righteousness of God found in Christ. So Lord, may they come to Jesus tonight, I pray. In Jesus' name I ask.